Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we think we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron, you're up this week. Indeed. What are you bringing to the table today? Yeah, uh, I'm bringing an article by Carol Anderson, um, who we have seen before, talked about before on the podcast uh, in the All In documentary. Um, But her article is called America's Gun Obsession is Rooted in Slavery. Uh, That was originally printed in The Guardian. Um, And then I'm also bringing an interview that she did uh, on NPR's Fresh Air about her new book called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Yeah. Uh, And so the reason why I wanted to bring this to the table is I think it's important, um, as as you might be able to tell, I think from the themes that we've talked about so far in all of our episodes, it's important to think about the way that so-called universal rights um, in this country aren't actually distributed equally. Right. Uh, and this is yet another striking example. Uh, and so one of the things I, I thought about as I was reading it, reading the article, was about Philando Castile mm-hmm. um, and the Black Panthers. Um, and then, so I read the article and then I listened to the podcast and that was the first yeah. thing she talked about was the book was inspired in part by um, Philando Castile being a, a legal gun owner and having his license and everything and then being stopped by a police officer and then being killed because he had a gun yeah even though he had disclosed to the officer he had a gun he had a license for it and and stuff so he did all the right things he did all all the right things and the nra didn't do anything about that and so that was kind of what inspired her to think about the different the discrepancies and how those so-called rights are applied to different um people um in in the country uh and so yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah. Um, where do you want to start? What stuck out to you? Yeah, well, there was a lot that stuck out to me. And yeah. yes, I agree uh, about Carol Anderson. We've talked about her before, and I think we're both uh, big fans of hers. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited that you brought uh, her back to the table. Um, you know, I, until now, I don't think I've given enough thought to the connection that exists between guns and and gun ownership and gun mm-hmm. violence and and really this notion of how we as a nation are gun obsessed yeah. um and the connection of all of that to this country's rich history uh with and and present day struggles with anti-blackness yeah. um you know i think it i think i've found it sort of both fascinating to critically think about and, and examine uh, that like through this article and and her interview um and it's also absolutely true right you know i think mm-hmm. she spelled out so many of the ways in which that's true um you know she began her article by saying and I, i'm going to quote her here bodies are piling up all over the second amendment as two of america's pandemics converge the plague of gun violence and the inability to mount an effective response even in the wake of multiple mass shootings is unfortunately rooted in the other pandemic gripping the United States, anti-blackness, and the sense that African-Americans are a dangerous threat that can only be neutralized or stopped by a well-armed white citizenry. You know, and that's certainly a 
pretty bold statement. But mm-hmm. from there, you know, she went on to show us like all the various ways in which this country's gun obsession can really be traced back to slavery um, and to time periods and conditions where black people were treated and, and seen as second class citizens to white people. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just think she did a really great job uh, and made a compelling case and argument like throughout all of her examples and, and all of the anecdotes from from history. Um, and especially, I think, as it relates to this idea that there is a connection uh, between guns and gun violence and and anti-blackness going all the way back to slavery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's so much and, and a piece of it, I think, that that's tied to it is in the interview. She points about points to the ways that black people were barred from owning guns at all, whether they were freed or not. Right. Yep. Um and so there were specific laws banning um, black people from owning guns because black people, even freed black people, were not considered uh, citizens. Yep. And so rights didn't apply to people who weren't citizens, um, which I think this is another reason why I think um, as we talk about, you know, on the on the podcast, we talk about social justice and collective liberation. Mm. I think sometimes we fall too much into a rights framework um, which is um, uh, sometimes limited, right? Yeah. And w- that's, I think, why I we also wanted to talk about collective liberation as a concept and, and weave that in because sometimes what we need to do to, to fully recognize everybody is to sort of let go of what rights mean and think about, like, what does everybody need? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that's a... a piece of it too, as I think about it is like, well, if rights can be granted, citizenship can be edited, um, and changed and we can, we can shift, um, those things really easily. Um, but if we think about, there might be a different framework out there to think about it. And I think sometimes thinking about what liberation means is where that is. Um, but yeah, I think that there's so much history there about the ownership or the, the, banning of ownership of guns for black people that was really based in a fear of rebellions and uprisings that um militias you know squashed um the the and and managed the response to um that we'll i think talk about here in a few minutes but um yeah that all of that history is so like deep and it's very interesting to think about how it's all connected to the present day too absolutely yeah i well i'm glad you brought up sort of what uh what we're trying to talk about here Mm -hmm. on the show and why Mm -hmm. you know those concepts you know of of social justice and collective liberation are important to us and i think carol helps uh make that clear um uh for us or is it a clear example of that for us yeah and and this history it, there's just so much here right mm-hmm. um that i learned about through both this article and uh and her interview um so i i really appreciated all of that you know one of the things that i want to talk about um you know i think she made some really poignant statements in her article um and and she certainly expanded on all of this in in the interview too um you know, like you said, she talked about black people being outlawed from owning guns. Yeah. Um, she also talked about how it was more important to focus on the work of the militias in the South on, uh, again, as you said, containing enslaved folks, um, as opposed to recruiting manpower to be successful in their fight against the British back in the 1700s. Right. Um, right. 
Because yeah. even if they lost the the Revolutionary War, yep. like plantation owners and the and the Southern interests were like, well, even if we lose that and we're still a British colony, we'll still have our our uh, chattel slavery. Right. Yep. Like that was more important to them. Yeah. Um, and and I think related to that was one of the most fascinating things that I learned about, and uh, which was sort of the detail surrounding the. Virginia Ratification Convention for the Constitution mm-hmm. and the concerns that Virginia and, and other southern states had around wanting to keep control of their militias because they wanted their militias to remain these entities that could suppress slave revolts, right? Yep. Like there was talk about uh, George Mason, right? And, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I thought of you and I was like, Aaron probably knows a bit of this history given sort of your time spent there, but yeah. um, it, I, I, had, I did not know um, some of that. So that was all really so wild to, to read about. You know, and so, you know, I mentioned the, these poignant statements that she made. The first was, and I'm quoting, it was more important to the plantation owners in the colonial government to maintain slavery and control black people than to fight for American independence, right, yep. as you just yep. said. And the second thing she said was, quote, in other words, concerns about keeping enslaved black people in check are the context and background to the Second Amendment. The same holds true for today. You know, and that's yeah. wild to think about, right? Um, like these southern states agree to join the union under this agreement and understanding that their militias, um, and, you know, under this understanding around their militias, right, and what they would be used for, right. um, and how they could control them and use them, and um, and we see how that became the roots and and the foundation for and of the Second Amendment. Yes, um, yeah, I really appreciated that connection between the Second Amendment. Um, that she makes in the interview is basically another version of the three-fifths compromise. Yes. Um, And this amendment was just a negotiation tool to give the slaveholding representatives um, a bone so that they would join the union so they could have that full independent control of their militias in order to suppress slave revolts if they did happen. Yeah. you know, one of the other things that I think, uh, shifting here a little bit, one of the other things that I think was a remarkable piece of history um, is some of the discrepancies that happened between some rebellions. Oh, yeah. Um, so they happened in the early days of the United States. Uh, and so Carol Anderson in the interview shared some really specific discrepancies between the Whiskey Rebellion mm. uh, and Gabriel's Revolt. Yes. Um, and they're they're pretty stark. So I'm going to uh, talk about them here just to, for a minute. But uh, the Whiskey Rebellion was in Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania. And it was a rebellion against the taxes that the newly formed federal government had levied against whiskey and other spirits. Um, and so the distillers in Pennsylvania didn't like this. Uh, and they started using violence against federal tax collectors. And, and um, you know, really abhorrent violent things like tarring and feathering federal agents um and washington ended up taking federal troops um the sort of newly formed u.s official army right um and he stopped the rebellion um only two men were found guilty uh and they were found guilty of treason and sentenced to hanging. Uh, and then they were pardoned by George Washington. Yeah. Um, so no one was actually held accountable for this violence. And so Carol Anderson talks about that. 
Um, because who were those folks? They were, I mean, they were, they were people who owned distilleries mm-hmm. um, and, and were distilling liquor. Uh, and so they were mostly white people. There you go. Um, right. And so that, that's one group. And then Gabriel's Rebellion was uh, designed to end slavery in Virginia. And Gabriel Prosser was an enslaved blacksmith in Richmond, Virginia, and he tried to organize this rebellion. The plans for it got leaked, mm-hmm. uh, and then he and 25 others were in, who were involved in the planning um, were hanged publicly. Uh, and so you can clearly see the differences between the application of gun laws and other laws in the early days of the Republic. Yep. Um, and part of this you know, is through the dehumanization of black people. Yes. Um, as Gabriel was legally considered someone's property rather than a citizen, uh, and so were all of his, um, you know, sort of comrades in this rebellion. Uh, so trials weren't required to hang them; they could just nope. just decide um, to do that. And so there's a a big discrepancy between actual physical violence happening during the Whiskey Rebellion against federal employees. Yep. Um. And a rebellion that was stopped before it even happened um, against enslavement, right? And so it really shows this kind of viciousness that the South uh, and and governing bodies in the South had in protecting chattel slavery by sending a message to anybody who wanted to end that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, another piece that I think about as I talk about this is it it's also connected to what we talked about last week with our discussion about the red summer of ah, 1919 in yeah. Tulsa, right? Like mm-hmm. this intimidation factor is a consistent characteristic of, of white supremacy and the maintenance of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, that was another thing. This was another sort of piece that I learned, um, from, mm-hmm. from her interview, right? I, I, I did not know about, um, Gabriel Prosser, um, right. or this whiskey rebellion, but you know, uh, I'm I'm glad she shared that story, right? Um, uh, and and shared this history, and I, I think it's just a clear, open and shut example of the unequal treatment of of black folks and and what anti-blackness looks like, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I appreciate you sharing it and highlighting it here, and uh, it was something that, like I said, I learned a lot about. Um, you know, and that makes me think about what Carol talked about in that interview and what we've talked about in a previous episode, you know, the all in documentary, um, around what the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments did, um, and what the period of, of reconstruction meant for black people in this country. Um, you know, but it also specifically makes me think about how, again, it's clear that anti-blackness has been rooted in this country, right? You know, because despite those amendments and in spite of reconstruction, Carol pointed out how there were the black codes, right? And how we see the rise of right-wing militias and and domestic terrorist groups working with the state governments in the South to disarm and torture and kill black folks. And, And that's even when, and this is an example that Carol talked about, I believe in the interview, even when black militias were called in to defend democracy, um, you know, we then see that there's the Colfax massacre of 1873, which again is something I, 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 a story I had not heard about, um, where the members of these black militias were slaughtered, right? Like these black military folks were called in to help, um, and they were murdered. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I know this is something that we want to talk about as we've both thought about what this all means for our present day, 
But, you know, this idea or, or question of do black folks actually have the same standing and rights under the Second Amendment, you know, is one that clearly goes way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, I just appreciated all of the work Carol did to highlight all of this history and, and share these stories and, and make it clear that this is a valid question for us to sort of reckon with. Yes, absolutely. I think that all of that history is there. I, that story about the militia also being massacred um, also reminds me of the story in um, in the documentary last week where we talked about uh, federal troops have been brought in um, and uh, it, during one of the massacres and um, black folks who were hiding in marshes and in, in the forests and oh, stuff yes. came out because they thought that they were sort of being rescued in yeah. a way. Uh, and then those, those troops, the national guard or whoever it was, um, I forget in this moment shot at them and killed yep. them and, yep. and sort of joined in with the white mobs in that massacre. Um, and just how much, like how that's connected and related to mm-hmm. to the same kind of theme and the same kind of anti-blackness and white supremacy over and over and over again. Yes. Um, in this country. So that, that parallel also stuck out to me as you were talking about that mm. um, Colfax massacre. Um, all right. So I'm going to shift a little bit to talk about some things that are happening um, more recently or have happened more recently. Okay. In the article, Carol Anderson points out the the ways that we didn't respond to modern day crises. Um, in the article, she says, thus, the slaughters in Sandy Hook, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston and San Bernardino did not lead to any meaningful gun safety laws, despite the staggering casualties. The rampant anti-blackness that dominated Barack Obama's presidency helped to short-circuit a tangible legislative response. Instead, the fear of being left defenseless to a nation with a sizable black population and black leadership was palpable. Hmm. Gun sales soared by 158%, as did the rise of anti-black right-wing militias. Wow, 158%. Yeah. Um and so I think that that's such a profound thing to point out that our national resistance um, to any kind of restrictions of gun ownership is tied directly to anti-blackness and this history of anti-blackness and strengthened during the presidency, that that resistance strengthened during the presidency of the first ever black president yeah. um, and how much those like anti-black right-wing militias, right, like they can probably trace uh, um, you know, ideological lineage to the clan, yeah, right, and the clan forming in the wake of Reconstruction, um, in the South, and just thinking about like how these things, like we're repeating pieces yeah. of history, yeah. in these small ways, um, and huge ways, right? Like, it's, yeah. it, the the repetition, I think, is um, just feels so clear to me as we continue to learn more together here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it also sort of just makes me think about um, uh, sort of a conversation that you and I had this morning before we started recording around like how complicated life is and sort of these yeah. major issues uh, that we grapple with as a society, right? They they are complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are complicated beings with a complicated history, right? And so as you think about, you know, uh, this morning we were talking a little bit about capitalism. Uh, that's the fun stuff that Aaron and I like to talk about uh, over our coffee in the morning before we start recording, right? Like the this idea that, 
like circumstances have changed for folks, right? Yeah. Like human beings have changed, our conditions have changed, right? But that, but as you think about what are the solutions to something like capitalism, right? You have to take into consideration where we have been, right? Mm. And where we are now and the conditions for all folks, all folks of all walks of life, right? right. Um, and where they are, what is the, what you know, and there's economics to that, there's, there's social climate to that, right? I mean, there's so much to consider, right? And so when I, when I think about it as it relates to this, right? Like, you know, Carol makes such a compelling uh, sort of case here, how all of this is connected to anti-blackness, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah. as we think about that, and I certainly want to talk about it, right? Um, we've got to consider that, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just wild to see all of these connections between history and our present day. And I, I definitely feel like that's been a common theme for us here lately. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate what Carol did to talk about what's happening right now and, and our current circumstances, um, especially as it relates to, to mass shootings, um, because that's such a pervasive major thing that we are just, dealing with and for, for, for we've just been dealing with. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, I definitely have some thoughts about that and, um, but I might hold on to those for, for application. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the connections between some of the themes of history and how that is parallel and still functioning today is a, um, a huge theme of our conversations here on the yeah. podcast. Um, but I think I really appreciated this article and this interview, um, for pointing out a thread of things that I hadn't really ever thought about or seen pointed mm-hmm. out before, right? And I, you know, it also makes me think about critical race theory. Yes, um, just the conversation that. there and how so often the reaction to when we talk about racism in our country is why do you have to make everything about race? Mm. It's like, well, if you if you if you dig a little deeper, yep. everything actually is about race. Like gun ownership and the Second Amendment is about race. Yep. And it's about enslavement, yep. right? So uh, it's it's a it's an issue that doesn't seem like it is on the surface, but then you just scratch the surface a little bit, and all of a sudden, we're, you know, we're talking about anti-blackness and white supremacy and and right-wing militias and the state's militias in squ- in quashing slave revolts, like yeah. that. And to take your point a, a step further, right? And because you brought up critical race theory. It's tied to the law. It's tied to yes. our, our our rights, right? It's tied to yes. these state governments and their actions and their decisions, right? It's tied to the self agreeing to join the union, right? Like, yep. so that is critical race theory right there as it was intended to be, right? As a connection to racism and the law. Yes. Um, so this is it. Absolutely. Yeah, so much. I feel like we just started talking about application, but let's officially shift. Man, yeah. Um, so for you listeners out there, we're now talking about application. <laughs> if you're um, keeping track. So as I think about application, I think about, you know, the things, uh, usually the things that are happening in the present day. Yeah. Right. And so I think about what's happening with the NRA, um, aside from their like sort of legal issues and and their sort of shady financial stuff that they've been doing and going bankrupt and all of that stuff. Um but, you know, the NRA and Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene mm-hmm. and their staunch advocacy for guns. And I think about how much of that is tied to these perceived threats that they feel like they're constantly facing that feels tied directly to the same kind of threats that the the slave owning representatives from the South felt in the Constitutional Convention 
um, from from slave revolts and how much of this is tied again to this perception of critical race theory and anti-racism being an attack on whiteness mm. and right-wing radio has been calling anti-racism and you know diversity education a pathway to white genocide for decades mm. now and so those people who lis- listened to rush back in the early 90s as kids are now grown up and they're running around congress with their guns mm. wow showing them wow. off and bragging about it right and so yeah you know, that's, I think, like, that's the legacy that we're dealing with um, a little bit. And that's that's what we're talking, like, they've been talking about this for so long. And now it's sort of, it's come time to harvest the seeds that they planted way back. And they're they're doing it. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think about, too, is the NRA really showed their hand when they started their ill-fated NRA TV online video oh, channel. Yes. Right. It was all so alarmist and played on white people's fears of immigrants and black people and and other themes of of white supremacy. Um, And I think that this is, you know, one of the ways that I think that that this all applies to us today, because the NRA is hanging on to the Second Amendment and a very narrow understanding of of what the Second Amendment actually says um, that we can thank the Supreme Court for deciding that the Second Amendment actually grants individual rights to own a gun um, when I, I don't think that that was the original intent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and for a court full of originalists, it seems a little ironic. But um, fighting against any challenges to the Second Amendment, um, they're doing that with the same methods that slave-owning states and the representatives for those states used 250 years ago in the Constitutional yeah. Convention. So these things are all interconnected, and I think that's how it's applying, is like when we look at the NRA with this lens, we can see sort of the rampant anti-blackness and, and white supremacist uh, ideals that flow through um, what it means to own a gun that's expanded a bit way beyond like their sort of kind of original, like, let's talk about gun safety yeah like in the home and if you're going to own right. a gun be safe with it and um you know even that even that's probably uh, a rose rose colored glasses of yeah their, or of their origins right but absolutely yeah that's, so that's what i think about with with application in in this in yeah well uh and i i appreciate that you talk about like this idea of the fear of white genocide by sort of conservatives right like that yeah you know what you know anti-blackness education anti-racism sort of this this thinking around that um how that's a scary thought, uh, mm. apparently, right? Uh, and that it will just ultimately lead to uh, white genocide. But really, what it is is a is a is a, a conceding <laughs> this power, right? That white folks have had in this country since the dawn of time, um, right? And I just I guess it's sort of just unfathomable um, <laughs> that other people, non-white people. Uh, deserve to have deserve to have a to be free right deserve yeah. to have uh justice and liberation yeah. um yeah absolutely that's fascinating um so that's great application work you know I, I alluded to this earlier and and honestly i don't really know if this is application but that's what i'm calling it yeah. um you know for me what this article and interview made me think about as it relates to application work is, is gun violence and, mm-hmm. and, and, and really mass shootings. Um, I, I had to sort of sit and pause with that for a while. And, and, and the sort of words that Carol uh, said 
about it, but also, as you just mentioned, about white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this is just really sad and infuriating to think about, but I honestly cannot believe that we as a nation have not enacted stricter gun laws and policies and that we haven't done work to challenge the Second Amendment, given how many mass shootings we have had in this country um, for, at this point, decades, right? You know, know, but as Carol pointed out, I think there's a clear connection in this uh, to the notion of how this country has protected and coveted white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't know what it's going to take to get us there. You know, I don't know how many more mass shootings we have to endure before it happens. Um, I don't know how many more innocent folks of color have to die by police violence um, while the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world uh, get to live despite walking by police with an AR-15 after literally committing a mass murder. Um, You know, but with all that uh, in my mind, you know, I certainly think about um, the vital importance of making these connections and asking the critical questions of ourselves about how all of this ties to white supremacy and then, you know, taking action on Carol Anderson's good work and thinking here and all of the things we sort of talked about today and and in previous episodes. Yeah, I think one of the things... uh, one of the quotes from the article that really stuck out to me is tied to what you're saying here is when Carol Anderson wrote, thus the slaughters in Sandy Hook, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Um, right. And I, I think I said this already, but it, it, all this rampant anti-blackness and Barack Obama's presidency, yep. um, you know, and the gun sales, like, right. Like bringing that quote that I said earlier back yep. into the conversation is um, I think points to all of this that yep. like, it's all connected and it's all still happening. Um, and and we couldn't put together a tangible response. And no. I think because the NRA is so influential in so many places yes. with so many representatives um, that they that it just was a non-starter, right. um, particularly with the number of um, sort of Republicans who are directly tied to the NRA who are representing uh, different districts in Congress, um, you know, which is tied to the all in documentary yeah. and how voter stuff is happening. Um, and so all, all of these things that I think we're talking about, like we could weave uh, a tapestry of how yes. all of it's working together. Um, okay. Let's talk about homework. Okay. Um, I think my homework this week is to think a little bit more about gun control um, and maybe f- you know, find some campaigns to join or, or write some letters to Congress. Um, I think one of the things that's really challenging for me to wrap my mind around right now as I th- as I think about guns and gun violence is that my daughter is headed off to school in September. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of her world soon will be practicing active shooter drills. Yeah. Um, and I haven't really thought about that yet or struggled with that yet personally. Um, so that's actually where my mind and heart are at, uh, in this moment. And it's, um, it's heavy on both and having to think about how to talk to her about that when, before it happens, after it happens and what it all kind of means is, um, right. Like mind boggling, especially as we haven't, there's been no response to the consistent gun violence in the country. Yeah. And that's what I mean when I say sort of what I talked about in application around, I don't know what it's going to take for us to get there. Right. We've seen these mass shootings happen in schools. Right. And we have seen, um, children be Mm -hmm. the victims, uh, of these experiences. Right. And so I, 
I, I, I get that, my friend. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and it's, it's time to, um, start thinking about that. Right. Uh, with, with, with her going off to school. Yeah. Um, for me, I think, um, you know, I said this earlier, um, we have talked about Carol Anderson before, uh, in our, on our podcast, and we are mm -hmm. definitely both fans of hers. And I think this week really only reinforced that for both of us. Um, yeah. and you know, for me, I think there was just a ton of incredible history presented in this article and interview, and I learned so much. And so, um, I think I want to keep this learning going. Um, so homework for this week for me is to read her new book, uh, mm -hmm. which actually just came out uh, in June. It's called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And, uh, you know, it continues this conversation and goes in depth on it. And so uh, I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out. Yeah, I think uh, to echo that, that seems like a great read based on these two relatively smaller pieces of media that we, yep. we have uh, listened to and read this week. Um, and I kind of wish that I had realized that that the article was connected to a whole book um, when I brought the article to the table. Uh, but we we live and we learn and we unlearn, right? Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Well done. Yes, Thank we you. do. Bows. Um, he said curtsy. bows. Okay. Well, um, well, well. <laughs> All right, Damien, you're up next. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? I am. All right, folks. So next week, I'm bringing a documentary to the table for us to talk about. Uh, the documentary is called Say Her Name, The Life and Death of Sandra Bland, um, which came out back in 2018 and can be found right now on HBO. Um, so let me first share the description of the documentary from HBO's website so you have a sense of what it is all about. Um, Say Her Name, The Life and Death of Sandra Bland explores the death of Sandra Bland, a politically active 28-year-old African-American who, after being arrested for a traffic violation in a small Texas town, was found hanging in her jail cell three days later. Dash cam footage revealing her arrest went viral, leading to national protests. The film team followed the two-year case beginning shortly after Bland's death, exploring the questions of what really happened to her and what we may learn from her tragedy. Um, so that's what the documentary is about. And, you know, the reason we wanted to talk about this documentary now on our podcast um, is because Sandra Bland died back on July 13th of 2015. So mm -hmm. it will have been six years uh, since her tragic death, uh, when we sit down to have our conversation. Um, so we wanted to, as the documentary is titled, say her name and, and talk about her and her story. Um, and, and also sort of neither one of us have actually seen the documentary. So this will yeah. be our way to be able to do that. So, uh, we hope that you will join us. Yes. Yes. Say her name. Um, I think that's going to be a tough conversation to have. Yeah. Um, I think, but uh, I'm also looking forward to reflecting on that and learning with you right here. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today and listening to Interdependent Study. You know what we want you to do here, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and a review, share our podcast with the people in your life, follow us on social media, and sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we have going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Hey, folks, thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.